this morning. And if you're visiting, again, this is, especially if this is your first time, so glad you're here. We love to see new faces, and uh, we thank God when we see new faces every week. So uh, we're glad that yours is one of those. And we really, this last fall and now into the winter, have been studying the last book of the Bible, Revelation. So this morning, we're, we're going to be kind of skipping around a little bit. We're in the last few chapters of Revelation, and we're looking at this, uh, this very powerful metaphor. It's an ancient metaphor about the people of God, about the church. Now, we have seen some really vivid images all through this book. I mean, that's what Revelation is famous for. You have, you know, the horsemen of the apocalypse, and you have dragons. And, I mean, it's, that's what Revelation's known for. And just recently, especially as we're getting toward the end of the book, we've seen some very vivid images of judgment. And we haven't even looked at all the ones there are to look at. But, I mean, very stark, very very uh, dire, if I can use that word. And this morning, we have one very vivid image about heaven. Now, we're going to look in different places, but it's an image that's developed in several spots as you get toward the, toward the end of the book. Uh, why is it that we need to see this? And in some ways, more importantly, why did the first readers need this image presented again and again? And again, if you're visiting and haven't heard some of the background, the, the, uh, the, the review or the intro, Revelation was first received by people that were in seven different congregations in the first century Roman world. And different scholars date the writing of Revelation with different dates. Some would say that it was written in the 60s before Jerusalem was sacked in 70 AD. Some scholars <clears throat> would say that it was afterward. That's when John the Apostle is a very old man. Maybe it was in the 90s. But here's the thing. Whichever of those is true, or if it's, if it's a date in between, here's the deal. The first recipients of Revelation and their children are facing persecution. And whether it happened in the lives of the readers, certainly they knew about this. They were hearing about what's going on in the world. But it wasn't long before the emperor Domitian, or Domitian, however you pronounce it, uh, really turned up the heat on Christians. And when I say turn up the heat, I don't mean just arrest. I mean crucifying people by the hundreds who professed to have faith in Jesus. If you would not take your little pinch of incense and throw it in the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. If you refuse to do that one little innocent, you know, that, or not innocent, that one little thing, but said, no, I can't do that because Jesus is Lord, they, they might line a Roman road with crosses and you might be spiked to one of those. You might be tortured to death. You might be decapitated. You might be set on fire. You might be torn apart by wild beasts in front of a crowd. That's not fiction. That's what happened. So, okay, if, if you're... And here's the thing. This is, this is great that we get to see this from the vantage point of where we are. History makes it absolutely clear that facing that kind of persecution, which wipes out other movements, the church didn't just survive. It flourished and spread all over the world against all odds. What was it that they had where you can see the lion stepping up onto the arena floor... And you can know it's worth it. That you can be walked down into the torture chamber 
a chamber that no one ever comes back from, and you can know it's worth it. What are they being shown? And I do want us to take, you know, to look at that, but I want to connect the dots to the 21st century where we are and ask this question. What if the people who are closest to me are not like-minded with me spiritually? What if my friends, my co-workers, the people I used to spend the most time with, what if none of them see what I'm claiming to see in Scripture and believe it to be true, and I feel like an outcast, and I feel like the outsider, <clears throat> in some ways following Christ has made my life harder. Why is it worth it? What could we be shown from the end of Revelation that can help us now? Revelation, beginning in chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow there in the order of worship. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Chapter 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, please let us hear you. And please show us how much you love sinners. Please show us how kind you are. Please show us how patient you are. Please show us what you've done through Jesus, through your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There was uh, an African-American scholar in the 1940s named Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman was invited by Harvard University to give a lecture about spirituals, about black spiritual songs. And, this, and again, this is 1947. This is pre-civil rights, civil rights movement. And so it was something unique for him to be brought in as a scholar to speak about this area of expertise. And uh, he gave a lecture, and it was entitled The Negro Spiritual 
speaks of life and death. The Negro spiritual speaks of life and death. Now, as you'd expect, he goes through these songs and he looks at the lyrics. And he talks about why were these important to those who were singing them? Why were these so important to the life of these communities? And he's not just talking about African-American communities in his own day, but really more of his focus was on during the institution of slavery. Now, just listen to this one little citation. He, he quotes from a song that's about heaven. And in the song, it's talking about how bright heaven is. And then he says this, such an aspiration, in other words, to live in a place like that, was in sharp contrast to dimly lighted cabins with which they were familiar. Perfection, truth, beauty, even goodness are again and again symbolized by light. This is universal. Heaven was as intensely personal as the facts of their experience or as the fact of the judgment. Now, did you catch that? That when this community sang these songs, it made heaven not just personal to them, but personal and factual. It was just as factual as their circumstances. Heaven was not an abstraction. Heaven, that I can't see yet, is as real as the chains. Heaven is as real as this back-breaking work. And it's as real as the coming judgment on oppression. All right, let me read that again. Heaven was as intensely personal as the facts of their experience or as the fact of the judgment. Here at last was a place where the slave was counted in. He had the dignity of personal registration. Now, that, and, and, well, beautifully stated... And he interacts in this lecture with people, and this is probably coming from a Marxist perspective, who would say, okay, but weren't those just songs that just sort of give you an attractive image of a better life in another world where you're not a slave? I mean, but isn't that a problem because that's not true? The songs aren't true. And Howard Thurman's response was, if it's not true, then the hope is not real. And they had real hope as proven by the fact that they endured. In other words, let's say it's not true. If someone had come to the slave community and said, look, you just need to understand that these words are beautiful and it's a neat thought, but there is no afterlife. Now have hope. Now hold your head high. Hold your head high and aspire to whatever you can. So here are men and women and children who are saying, I and my children and my grandchildren are in just crushing poverty. And okay, so what? I'm just going to kind of square my shoulders now? And be stoic? No. They endured because they had actual hope in actual facts. And the fact was, there's a heaven coming. Now... Heaven is presented in different ways in Revelation. We looked last week about, you know, the city, about how it's like a city, and we're going to return to that. And there's another famous passage about heaven being dressed like a bride in chapter 21. I'm holding off on that because I want to get to that with another sermon. Uh, so much I want to say about it. But this image of heaven and the people of God being 
a bride on her wedding day is an ancient metaphor. Let me read you just one passage from the Old Testament. And I'm going to read a lot from the Old Testament this morning. So, so there. It's like a threat or something. I ought to. Okay. No, but, but, but we've said all through this series that just these images don't come out of thin air. They're drawn again and again from the Old Testament, especially the prophets. Listen to this. Hosea. And Hosea has a strong, strong theme of the people of God being like an unfaithful bride and God is the faithful husband saying, I still love you. I still want you. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19. And this is when God's people are disobeying and just doing wicked stuff. And He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. There it is. Well, and by the way, when we get to the Gospel of John, that's the same John that wrote Revelation, what does he show us as Jesus' first miracle? It's a miracle. And John is careful to call it a sign. He says the first sign that Jesus performed is a miracle at what? At a wedding feast. And it's a miracle in which the level and the quality and the quantity of the wine is brought up significantly by Jesus so the celebration can continue. His first sign. And then in the next chapter, John chapter 3, he quotes John the Baptist as referring to Jesus as what? The bridegroom. So this is a richly biblical metaphor. Now, we've got this language of bride and wedding day and wedding supper, marriage supper. What are we saying about heaven? I just want to say three things this morning. We're going we're gonna to hit this more, Lord willing, in later sermons. But three things about this theme this morning and about heaven. First off, that it's adornment. You think wedding day. It's adornment. It's feasting. Dormant, it's feasting, it's, and there are invitations. You know, I, I was doing some premarital counseling a week or so ago, and uh, I said, when you take those invitations to the mailbox and you let go, something existentially happens. It is a weird experience. Well, that's in the biblical metaphor. There are invitations. Now, let's start off with the first adornment. Um, remember this. We looked just recently from Revelation at this um, alluring, attractive, seductive, evil woman. Babylon. Babylon the city slash Babylon the prostitute. And twice in the chapters right before this, it describes how she adorns herself. It uses that verb to describe what she puts on, how she dresses, to seduce, to draw. So she's adorned. And then by contrast, what do you get? You get these texts. Look in chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. It says, The marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now think about this. We have stores dedicated to bridal clothing, We have magazines dedicated to bridal clothing. We have reality TV shows dedicated to bridal clothing. We have trade shows dedicated to bridal clothing. We're into brides. 
and what they wear. And it's not just the dress, it's everything. It's the jewelry, it's the makeup, there may be some personal item, a ring from an ancestor. It's the whole deal of adornment. When you see the people of God in their heavenly existence presented as a bride, there's this highlighting of how she is adorned. Now, but, but there's a little bit of a theological, I, don't want, I won't say problem, but a challenge when you read these words. Let me, let me read verse 8 again. It says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, if you've been around downtown Prez or if you've heard gospel teaching otherwise, otherwise, um, other places, you, you may be thinking, that doesn't sound right. I thought that the beauty of God's people wasn't what we did. I thought the beauty of God's... I thought what you did was the problem you're having to be saved from. And that's true, but it says that she's dressed in this beautiful linen and it's the righteous deeds of the saints. How does that work out? Now, let, let me read you something from Isaiah 61. And here's this ancient image again. It says, I will greatly... Re this is Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest, the beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now, what is that telling us? The clothing, the adornment that the bride wears yes, involves her actions. But even the beauty of her actions was given to her by God. That is said by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. He says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, you can't save yourself. You can't earn your salvation by your own deeds. But then in the next verse, Ephesians 2, verse 10, he says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand for us to do. How does anybody who knows Jesus Christ do a good deed? Because God enabled you to. He prepared you for it. He indwelt you. And he, he dwelt in you by His Holy Spirit. And He saved you and washed you in the first place. Now, lest there be any doubt about this, I mean, if you're thinking, well, it, but it sure sounds like the adornment of the bride is that she tried hard enough and she obeyed enough, and, and that's why she's pretty. If there's any doubt in your mind about that, look at the other passage about her adornment. Look in chapter 21. Uh, start in verse 10. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, I've said this before, but it's appropriate to say it again in this context. It just, it kind of embarrasses me, things I've learned just even in the last few years because, just because I had to think about it. And I think, why, it embarrasses me to stand before you sometimes and go, how did I not notice that? Now, one that I've shared with you before is from the song Amazing Grace, the most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And in the last stanza, when it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, 
Now, I grew up singing that song. So for however many decades, I thought the, the phrase bright shining as the sun described the word there. When we've been there in heaven, you know, bright shining as the sun. And it finally dawned on me that that's not what the words mean. Maybe all of you know this, knew this the whole time and you did not tell me. It's when we've been there 10,000 years and we've been bright shining as the sun. Jesus says in Matthew 13, he says this explicitly, that there will come a day where the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Now, is it a light that finds its origin in the people of God? No, it's a derivative light. Where is the light derived from? The bride is given clothing from God, and the clothing is His own glory. It says, John, and this is incredible, this angel who's been holding this bowl full of wrath, this bowl full of plague, says, hey, let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so they go up on this high mountain, and he sees the bride, but how is she dressed? She's dressed in the glory of God given to her. And it says that she looks like a jasper. If you've been in the series, that might ring a bell because when you get this vision of God Himself on His throne in Revelation chapter 4, and John is reaching for some kind of comparison as to what God looks like on the throne, he says he looks like, he looked like a jasper. And John gets a vision of the wife of the Lamb, and she looks like a jasper. In other words, God clothed her with what He looks like. Now, if we will let it, this is an opportunity for us for the beauty of the good news, the gospel, to really work its way into our hearts because I know this from my own experience and I know this from talking to you, that you can be a person who believes factually that Jesus has made you clean and feel dirty. You can be a person who factually believes, I mean really believes, that God has done something in my life and has made me to Him beautiful, but feel day in and day out like you're ugly to Him. And that He's looking at you saying, I don't know, you know, I give my commands, I give wisdom, I give, I give you all the, all the parameters of what smart living would look like that would go well for you. And I send my son. I clean you. But you keep making these stupid mistakes. Okay, no, I'm not going to snuff you out, but just can you just minimalize your embarrassing me? And this is the vision of a bride who ha- she's dressed in the only thing that would make God say, Wow. What's the only thing that would make God say, wow? His own glory. God looks at the bride. The lamb looks at his wife. And to use an expression of a friend of mine, Les Newsom, he said, Jesus looks at the church with honeymoon affection. I, I just adore her. Adornment. Second, there's a feast. Uh, Chapter 19, verse 9. Write this. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, once in a while there's a reference to this big feast that God's people are going to have. Let me read from the Old Testament again. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And and, uh, I read where somebody was commenting on that verse. He said, apparently, eternity is not a low cholesterol affair. You know, thank the Lord. Rich food, well-aged wine, rich food uh, full of marrow, aged wine well refined. Now, that's a text. There are others. In the New Testament too. But it's, it's the picture that heaven commences with a gigantic feast. Now, not just a good meal. There's good meals, but then there's feasts. It's kind of like, when does a group of people go from being a group of people to a party? I don't know, but you know it when you see it. When you go from a really excellent meal to a feast, I don't know, but you'll know it when you see it. Think about this. In, in Matthew chapter 22... Jesus, he's telling these parables about the kingdom, and one of the parables starts this way. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He's telling you about God, he's telling you about heaven, and that's how he sets it up. It's a feast. Now, it'd be fun to unpack that more, but let's at least say this. What is that telling us about God and what is that telling us about the gospel? In many ways, it's echoing what we just talked about. Think about the parable of what we call the prodigal son. It really is the parable about two sons. And here's this guy, and he's a knucklehead, and he blows the family money, and he's embarrassing, and he squanders it, and he comes back a shell of his former self, and he's prepared his speech. And he's going to say, Dad, you don't, you don't even have to treat me like a son. I'm just happy to be your employee. And before he can get the speech out of his mouth, embraced, kissed, brought in, brought to the house. And what are the instructions? Give this guy a shower and just let him go to bed. No, no. Put a robe on him. Put a fine robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. We're going to feast and we're going to celebrate. And what happens when the other brother sees that? He says, you're throwing a feast for that guy and he is bad. That son of yours. And what does the father say? God. He says, this brother of yours is home. And we're going to celebrate. And what is, what is Jesus showing us? He's saying, that's what God is like. That's what my Father is like. And the ultimate manifestation of that is going to be when people who have fought with their children and fought with their parents and fought with each other and lied and cheated and committed adultery and been addicted to things and just everything in between... God is going to take people like that whom He has washed 
through the finished work of Jesus Christ and clothe them in His Son's perfect righteousness, He's going to take them and bring them in and there will be no lectures, there will be no reviews about mistakes, automatic feasting. Again, here's an opportunity, if we'll hear it, for the gospel to work its way into our hearts. Do you believe that God wants to spend time with you? I don't want to feast with people that I hate. I don't even want to feast with people that I tolerate. I want to feast with my bestest friends. That is heaven. When Almighty God, who's a consuming fire, say, Now we celebrate. It's interesting, too. You know, all feasts that we know end. It just says there's a feast and it's always singular. It seems to suggest what? That it never stops. In that, in that parable in Matthew 22, there was a king. kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Uh, that parable goes on to say that the king is inviting everybody he can. He wants the hall where the wedding banquet is. He wants it full to the edges he keeps inviting and inviting. He finally tells his servants, just go out to the highways and the byways and the hedges and bring anybody who will come. I want this place packed out. There is the heart of God. But there are invitations. Now, did you hear the invitations? First off, it says back in chapter 19, verse 9, write this. And this is the angel saying, John, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the fourth of seven times where Revelation says, blessed are these people. The fourth of seven benedictions, you might say. Blessed are those who are invited, not those who are present. And please hear me, in whatever spiritual condition that you're here this morning, Revelation says it's a blessing if you even hear the words of this book. Just to be present. It doesn't say blessed is everybody who's there and attends. It says blessed are you if you're just invited. You're being invited. But then it goes on to say this, and this is that last text from chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. A few weeks ago, I finished um, a book that I'd been wanting to read. It came out just last year. And it's a book entitled Quiet. And it's about introverts. And I read this strictly for research purposes. I've heard that some of them even go into the ministry. Yeah, that's weird. But, uh, but it's a fascinating book. And, and just page after page, I was seeing, seeing myself... And uh, a lot of it's really scientific, a lot of like, you know, brain research and, and that kind of thing. But there was a story at the end of the book, and it was the one time when I was reading that book that, um, as a relative of mine would say, that I got a little verklempt. Kind of got me. And she, she told the story of a guy named David Weiss. And David Weiss is a, um, a musician in New York City. And she said that David Weiss, uh, he adores his wife. He adores their baby. 
He is a very successful musician. He loves living in New York City. He thinks it is the greatest city in the world to live in in his vocation. And uh, the author, Susan Keynes, just says that, you know, by, by any barometer of a good life, he has a fantastic life. But she said as she got to know David, she found out that it wasn't always that way. He grew up in Detroit. And uh, he loved music and writing at an early age, but his peers did not. He stuck out like a sore thumb. And he said, I was in sixth grade when the movie Revenge of the Nerds came out, and I could have been cast in that movie. And he said, Detroit was like any city. If you're attractive and if you're athletic, you do well. And if you don't, you're squashed. And I, I, I wasn't attractive and I wasn't athletic. It was extremely hard. And he said that my parents' friends used to say, oh, man, school, these are the best years of your life. And he said, I hated school. <clears throat> but, but his life turned out amazing, at least vocationally and the experience of it. And um, he said this. He said, you know, he started drumming. And drumming became this way for him to be musical but cool in high school. And the jock stopped beating him up. And it kind of opened the door to the rest of his life. Now, here's the part when I read it that, that got me. He said that <clears throat> sometimes when I'm just in, when I look up and I can't believe my life, like maybe I'm sitting in New York City and I'm, and I'm interviewing Alicia Keys and other just, you know, cool people in my industry, and I can't believe it's me. <clears throat> he said, I, I send a signal back to, to me as a nine-year-old, and I, and I tell myself, you're going to be okay. And when I read that, I felt torn. Because on the one hand, biblically, I don't think that checks out. I don't think you can psychically send messages back. Because if you could, I didn't hear any of them in my own childhood <laughs> and could have benefited from them. But the beauty of it just got me, you know? That he's okay and he's sending word back to the insecure nine-year-old saying, you're going to be okay. In fact, you're going to be great. And the, and the nine-year-old is affected by that. So I just kind of had that in my crawl. And then I read this text. Let me read it again. The spirit and the bride say come. And I think that for most of my life, when I've read those words, to me it has said, the spirit says come. And I don't want to downplay that that the God who would deserve to pour out justice and wrath on us says, come, come to this glory. But the text says the Spirit and the bride say to the reader, come. Who is the bride? Collectively, it's the people of God. It's the Christians. If I understand this correctly, if you're in Christ... It's the future you speaking from the future to you now saying you can endure because it's going to be great. And I want to say this. Some of you sitting in this room are middle schoolers or high schoolers and you're really starting to think about your faith. 
Or it may be that you, you, you know you're a Christian, that you have professed faith in Jesus Christ, but it's hard to live that out in middle school or high school. And, and I want this for everybody in the room. I don't know why this just gets me, but I want everybody in the room to see this, but especially y'all, to see this text giving a picture, not just of God saying come, but even of the future you in glory, looking at you now, maybe as a 13-year-old, and saying, come. If you think that was weird, why do you hear this? I'll end with this. You may be here this morning, and you're not a Christian yet. And I want you to think about something. What if... As you are hearing this this morning, what if through God's Word, the future you who loves Jesus Christ and belongs to Him and is counted as His bride, what if the future you who does know Christ is calling to you now along with the voice of God saying, Come. Everything that scares you that scares you to leave it to embrace Jesus. The only reason you're hanging on to it is because you are thirsty. Leave it. Come here and drink the water which will quench your thirst. There is a marriage for the people of God. Christians are the wife of the Lamb. And not only God Himself, but We, the bride, are saying to us, come, come feast, come rest, come be beautiful, come be merry. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, drive these words into our hearts. Um, beauty that hasn't made its way in. Make beauty go into the, the deep floors of our heart where it hasn't gone. Lord, to the person here who feels like they're forgiven but you just tolerate them, may they feel your love that you're already, already showing. To the person here who does not believe in Jesus as his or her Savior, as His or her Lord. Let them hear you, and strange as it sounds, perhaps them from heaven saying, come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.